Ephesians 24, verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. These two are two disciples. Where we are in the timeline of the New Testament and of the story of Jesus, Jesus has been crucified, executed by the Romans. This is what happens when you've you, you, you begin a revolution. The powers that be, the authorities that be, will want to squash you. And it appears as though this movement that was going to sort of reclaim the Jewish Messiah, reclaim um, Israel via this, this Jewish Messiah, the thing that I would argue everybody longs for, what every superhero movie is about, what every great novel is about, is that hero who will rally the people to make things new again, where everything falls into its right place. And they are walking away from ground zero of what has happened. Jesus, the revolutionary that they are following, has died on the cross. And so they head out to a village called Emmaus. They are walking, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Not sure how that happened. Resurrection body, all sorts of interesting references to this. He's risen from the dead, and, and immediately at first they don't recognize him. Verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Circle that phrase. They stood still, so they stopped. Their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? In other words, how did you not see the news this weekend? What things, he asked. Now this is just Jesus playing with them. Like straight up. Just before you think Jesus is like some stoic figure who's just doing his best Yoda impression. Jesus is playful. What, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, circle that phrase, that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He was supposed to make everything good again, to put everything back together. The prophets had talked about this Messiah. We thought he was the one, right? And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find the body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah, this one that they had hoped for that's like deeply embedded in Jewish consciousness, this one that's going to set everything right, didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, goes all the way back to the beginning of the story, and the prophets, he explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. It's important. He stays with them. As if he was going to go farther. He wasn't planning on it, clearly. I lost my place. <laughs> stay with us. But they, they, thank you, they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly er evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, 
broke it, began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. At the table, this is why our home churches gather at the table. Something happens here at the table. Our eyes are open. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So they look back and go, yeah, there was something about this guy. Did our hearts not burn? Circle that line. They got up. So Jesus ghosts on them. They got up and returned to Jerusalem. They went back. Then they found the 11, the other disciples with those And those with them assembled together, saying, It's true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I want to talk about disappointment, which is a great way to kick off the ministry year, the new fall season. I want to talk about disappointment, because that's what's going on in this story, to be clear. These two are disappointed. The mission has failed. All of the work, even if you're like, even just remotely familiar with the story of Jesus, you know there are a whole lot of, we're going to like leave our nets and follow him, leaving families, leaving ways of life, radically kind of shifting the whole posture towards how they saw reality to follow this Jesus. All of this work and all of these stories and all of these teachings and all of these healings, and he is crucified by the Romans like so many revolutions before. A complete political failure, so it seems. But we had hoped pure disappointment. Guys, ask anybody disappointed in this season. Anybody find themselves, I was going to say coming out of this pandemic, but I'm not sure where we are. I thought things would be different. We had hoped. I had hoped. How many in this moment, it's brought up all sorts of things like in your bones that you did not realize were there. Like it wasn't so much about the cultural situation happening out there, what it did, this stopping and this disruptive moment, unearth things in your marriage, in your parenting, in your family, in your soul, in your faith. How many of you, like these disciples, have been just disappointed with Jesus? Or maybe it's disappointed with the church. It's okay, he's big enough to handle this. Just disappointed. Anybody? I don't get overly disappointed. Uh, I'm the kind of person uh, who is like silver lining. Uh, if you're like a, you know, Enneagram person, like Enneagram 7, like I'm just like up and to the right, baby. We're going to make the best of it. Pandemic hits. I'm like, we've got to rally the, the church. I get together with friends of mine and we start asking, how do we run towards the pandemic, not away from it? Because historically, that's what Christians have always done. We don't run for, like, in a place of fear. We engage. How are we going to help people? We go to the ground zeros of the world and we ask the question, how do we pour out mercy and love and beauty and justice in these places? So we're going to do this. We organized a platform because we didn't know two weeks in how this thing was going to go. Are we going to need to have like a rapid response thing for our church? And, and then we're like, well, how do people are isolated? How do we create something like beautiful without spending like a bunch of money on like creating like some sort of online church experience that will just help hopefully like help people feel a little less alone and connected? And so everything just for me was like, I know this horrible thing has happened and continues to happen and people are discouraged and uncertain. I'm just like, I was made for this moment. 
made for this moment. I felt like a little part of me, like, this is what I was built for. And so as things climbed on and on and on, I became more and more, honestly, not disappointed or discouraged, but more excited about the possibility of what could happen, of what the church could be like, of who we could be. We did this series called The New Normal, like four weeks into the pandemic. You remember this? Yeah, we were like, you know, when, when things go back to normal in a minute, you know, like what's, uh, you know, like how, what are the things you want to leave behind? Did a whole thing on re-entry. And we're just like, like six weeks in, seven weeks in, eight weeks in, ten weeks in. Like we should have done this series. We should be doing this series now. We just... We thought this would be over. What's the new normal going to look like in the summer of 2020? It seems laughable now. And it was in that moment where I started, like, that growing disappointment and discouragement, turning the curve on, like, a new year in the end of 2020, and I, I began to feel the weight, like many of us, of all that was happening culturally. The, the, the disorientation of what am I supposed to think about this or this or how are people going to respond to this? I had a friend stab me in the back. I, 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 there was this toxicity that surrounded some things that were happening within our community. And I just, I felt exhausted and disillusioned. And I'm telling you all of this because I don't want to be that guy who projects a bunch of stuff onto you as if you're all in that space. But I want to share as somebody who is eternally optimistic and might get disappointed for a second and then just kind of moved on. I have a really hard time naming that I'm just like, I had hoped I wouldn't have to like, think about replanting a church or I had hoped that I wouldn't have to look at friends in the face who like decided to divorce their spouse because they deconstructed their faith I had hoped and I could go down the list I was tired and tired growing more and more disillusioned I didn't abandon my faith in God or walk away from Jesus and this is somebody who has a had a really robust understanding of why bad things happen and all of that and yet it was, I had to get to that point of just naming, I am disappointed. I had hoped. And there are deeper things happening in my heart. I mean, I had hoped, like, if I could be this moderated, moderate, sophisticated, intellectually dialed in person on these big cultural issues that people will just sort of accept the way of Jesus and they'll get it. I think some of us, I know within the church, kind of hoped, you know, like Justin Bieber is singing Reckless Love at Coachella. Like, well, there's these, all these celebrities coming into the church now. Britney Spears is posting literally the lyrics to So Will I on our Instagram. Like, this will be the thing. If celebrities come into the church, then, like, people outside will really get and lock into Jesus, and people won't be deconstructing everything. Like, we had hoped, like, that would happen, I think, some of us. We had hoped that we could engage in the work of justice and engage the complicated work of justice, specifically racial justice, without actually repenting of anything. I think a lot of us had set our hopes on lesser things. It's been a season for many of us of just placing our hope in the wrong things. Maybe it wasn't this big cultural stuff. It was just a recognition of like, oh, when I have nothing left, what do I go to? Alcohol, food, my investment portfolio, my school. Where it was just like all of these lesser loves came climbing to the top. My children, I preached at the east side this morning, and it was like this got an amen, which I was glad for, but like, and I don't want to pick on the east side. I can pick on probably a lot of people in this moment. But people started to idolize their children. It's like your children became everything. 
And like any idol, they will eat you alive. <laughs> Children in more ways than one. <laughs> Friends, just walk it away. So many who are just generally disappointed with life and just numbing and walking away. And in this story, this is what we have. These two figures walking away to Emmaus. And what I love, before you think this sermon is going to be the darkest, most dreary sermon ever, I promise you it's going to take a turn. But just a bit of comfort, even at this juncture in the story, Jesus is walking with them as they walk away. Now, I've got about like 15 proof texts that I could give you for that, that, for the kind of God that we worship and we say that we're rallied around. This is what he's like. As you walk away, Jesus walks with them. Is that comforting to anybody else? In moments of disillusionment and disappointment and ways that you might have been like, I'm exiting Jerusalem, I'm walking away from the Jesus thing. Again, maybe not wholeheartedly, maybe not like frontal lobe sort of thing, but you're just realizing like, I'm, I'm just, I'm disillusioned, I'm out. This Jesus, this God, this understanding of the divine walking away with you. That's good. That's good because I need that. Now, there's some conjecture about why they're going to Emmaus. Now, a couple of the lines I asked you to circle and underline in there, I want to zero in on. Why are they going to Emmaus? Now, it could have just been the Emmaus was a town nearby, but I don't think so because of the specific things that are mentioned in this passage. Emmaus had a reputation of great things happening there. Military messiahs, unbelievable movements. Years before, like not actually not that far before Jesus, you had the like sort of desecration happening of the temple and the Jewish culture by the Romans. And a man named Judas Maccabee started a movement against them. He was known, by the way, as the hammer, which I would like to be known as from this point on. He led a serious Andrew the hammer mook. No, it doesn't work. He had a series of unbelievable, stunning military victors. Think of, um, what was his name? Ro uh, Braveheart, Robert. You have Rob, like a Robin Hood type character. This is Judas Maccabee. His fame begins to rise. They would describe him in one document, quote, that the hammer was, as, was mighty in word and deed. Mighty in word and deed. Another place, powerful in word and deed. We read that he set the captives free. He cleansed and rededicated the temple. There was an epic battle that he won that is ranked one of the top 50 battles in world history. Yes, somebody ranked them. This, by the way, if you are to our Jewish friends and neighbors, when they celebrate Hanukkah, this is what they're celebrating. It was this revolt. It was a victorious thing. Emmaus is where that key battle happened. And these disciples, after being wildly disappointed, we had hoped things were going to go different, are walking to that town where movements happen and leaders are raised up. Maybe God, I can't help but think they're asking, maybe God will raise up something else there. I think there's a lot of us who have gotten um, on the road away from Jerusalem. As I ask you for a moment, like how far down the road did you get? How far, how far down the road of disillusionment? How far down the road of disappointment did you get? It's okay, like be real with yourself. There's no hope or healing or new life that comes from faking it. How far down the road did you get? I got a, further down the road than I thought. 
What did you think might change? If I could just get this together, just orient myself in this way a little more buy into this new social group. Maybe there's healing over there with that subculture. Maybe there's healing over there with those people. Maybe if I virtue signal hard enough over here with these folks, I can be accepted into here. Maybe I can pour myself wholeheartedly into this movement. Maybe what was your Emmaus? Maybe, like maybe an internet pastor will rise up and save the church. I don't know what you're thinking. (laughs) It is disorienting, it is disorienting. And Jesus comes along to these disoriented disciples, and he reorients them, walking with them as they walk away. And what does he say as he's walking with them? What does he say to them? What what does he say? He's walking with them along. They're like bumming out. He comes up beside them, and he's like, heavenly post-resurrection, you don't recognize me thing going on. And he goes, what are you talking about? First move, disillusioned disciples, walking with them as they go away. What are you talking about? Which raises an interesting question in my own heart. What have you been talking about in your disappointment? What have you been talking about in your disillusionment? What have you been talking about in your apathy or your indifference? Because we've been talking a lot about American politics, and we've been talking a lot about hand sanitizer, and we've been talking a lot about mask mandates, and we've been talking a lot about which lives actually matter, and we've been talking a lot about critical race theory with all sorts of conjecture and strange blogs and pretending like we understand. And we're like, I mean, a lot of us have been talking about signs and vaccines and conspiracy theories and secret things on the internet. And a lot of us have been talking about, well, you know, it's church in person, really church, and I think I can do church with just a few buddies at the bar every now and again. I mean, a lot of us been talking about a lot of things, and I think it's revealed the deficiency of our walk, our way, our apprenticeship, the deficiency of our discipleship to Jesus. It's revealed something. Because everyone else, we can let everyone else talk about everything except Jesus, and we get swept into the same thing. I'm not talking about taking like a healthy look at brokenness in the systems of our world. I'm talking about being swallowed or being pulled out of the way of Jesus, or Jesus ultimately, maybe this is a better picture, being decentered. Being decentered. Because Jesus loves a good, like, we're going to have a whole little mini series on this in a few weeks on deconstruction. Jesus loves some good <clears throat> deconstruction in the biblical sense of the word. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say, woe to you who do this. And he's okay with breaking down the brokenness of religious institutions or particular theories about what it looks like to be a human being and embodied. He's okay with breaking things down. We could go down the list about systemic oppression and leaning into things. But there's a very big difference between seeking the kingdom of God without the king and seeking the kingdom of God with the king. Because we want a lot of the goodies of Jesus and we want to see things made right. I don't know anybody who doesn't want like justice. And I've said this a million times, but the great irony is that the Western vision of justice is quite literally embedded in the Christian story, and yet so many have punted on the one who will help direct them, the king. Tell me you're tracking. Just give me a slight amen, even if it's just patronizing. You with me? Jesus is walking with them, and he resets and he recenters their conversation. Jesus cares about what we're talking about in our disillusionment and disappointment. He cares what the disciples are talking about as they walk away. And what does he do? 
He recenters them on the story, beginning with Moses and the prophets. Why all the way back there? He's like, I want you to see the whole story. I want you to see the bigger picture of what's going on here. I want you to get out of the myopic moment that you are in and pull yourself back out to some things that are just more true than anything else. He resets and he recenters them. What Jesus does here is something that I think we need to pay attention to in this season. To quote the great prophet Donald Draper, if you, do, it's a Mad Men reference, never mind. If you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. If you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. Jesus saying you need to recenter your life on him. He is changing the conversation. And as they approach the village of Emmaus, they break bread. That's all they do. He gives them an encounter with himself. And as he does this, as they then see him, he reveals himself. So the lights click on. I don't know what happens as he breaks the bread and pours the wine. The last moment that they were together with him, he brings them back to that moment. He doesn't do in that moment a deep dive into post-resurrection discipleship. He doesn't dive in and like do a huge like therapy session with them. That would have been great. He doesn't dive in in that moment and break down all the cultural idols and do this analysis of where we are and where we're going and the sociological like, understanding of what's happening right now. He doesn't. He doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He just gives them himself. He gives them what they need in the moment to go back. Hear this again. He gives them what they need in that moment to then turn around and go back. He gives them enough to remind them of who needs to be at the center. And what do they say? Did our hearts not burn? When Jesus recentered the movement on him, when they reinterpreted the scriptures as a living witness to the Messiah of the world, something began to burn in their hearts. And that was that he was enough. He's enough, y'all. He's enough. So what comes next? They get into the room, right? Classic story in the scriptures. They're all like, hey, guess what? The women were right again. Um, and <laughs> everything is not immediately resolved. They just know. They know that they would rather be in the uncertainty of the moment. Not everything's solved. They'd rather be in the uncertain, with Jesus in the uncertainty than in sort of some sort of false certainty that is just laden with idols. They'd much rather be with Jesus, and I don't know how this is all going to play out. This is a strange and confusing moment. I mean, just to highlight for a minute. Right? You guys know like, like red zones, yellow zones, green zones, like in terms of maps that indicate all sorts of different things, depending on what the map's about. When you think about like cultural cachet of being a Christian, like it benefits you something to say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. You could probably find some little town in Alabama, you know, or south of the Mason-Dixon line where it's like you somehow like you get a little— like, it's a good thing for you to say you're a Christian. There's some cultural cachet there. Now, a place like New England for a long time has sort of been like a yellow. You know, like, yeah, you're a bunch of weirdos, sort of sexually repressed, but you do a lot of good work. Yeah, like, I, I don't know, I'll leave alone, like, leave well enough alone, it's cool. And then there's red, which is like, it is actually um, 
uh, to some degree an unsafe thing for you to name that you're a Christian. This doesn't get you anything. In fact, it goes the other way. And I've seen, we've all seen, I think in a lot of ways. And by the way, I'm, I'm not under the impression I'm speaking to just followers of Jesus here. I'm not trying to paint some like martyrdom thing amongst Christians for those of you who are here and are not followers of Jesus. I just, I just want to sort of name for a lot of us who are Christians, and I know, I know for a fact a lot of us that aren't, they're just feeling the ache, whether it's it costs you something to say you're a Christian, or you can't out-conservative your conservative friends, or you can't, can't out-progressive your progressive friends. It's like Reddit is like leading the conversation, and there is, to quote one scholar, an exhausted majority in the United States of America who are disillusioned. This is not a Christian writer. And ex- anyone feel that phrase? An exhausted majority? Like, yeah, yeah. Disconnected and uncertain about what it looks like to go forward. Everything's not immediately resolved, but Jesus, there's like this peace that like we have what we need now, even in the uncertainty. We're not going to go to, we're not going to stay in Emmaus because there's no life in walking away. There's just no life there. There's no life in walking and like walking away. So what do we do now? Like what, what, is the, what is the step then as the disciples are about to enter into the movement that is the church? Right? They're about to step in. They don't know it yet, but they're about to like see Rome topple. Well, I, I want to tell you just a quick story. A mentor of mine um, uh, who had a lot to do really with helping shape my ideas about this, even this message, uh, he... Uh, went to a mentor of his in the later years of his life, this older gentleman who just is on fire for Jesus and just walked a long walk. And in the midst of my friend, my mentor's own disillusionment, he says something. He just, he, he reaches out to his friend and he just goes, it feels like the whole world has gone mad. What do we do? To which this older gentleman said, all right, first off, John, you should have been there in the 60s. This gives him a little perspective. Like, you think back, Black Lives Matter is sort of this complicated discussion. You should have been there at the birth of the civil rights movement. You should have seen the prophetic preaching power of Martin Luther King Jr. You don't know the disorientation that existed around the Jim Crow laws. People didn't know which way that whole thing was going to go. You should have been there that moment when Dr. King was executed. And the ache that spread across, like, huge swaths of the American population and the world. You should have seen it and the uncertainty and tension when the Black Panthers then rolled onto the scene. You want to talk about a culture of despair? Imagine JFK, first Catholic president, which for a mostly Protestant nation at the time just was very disorienting. He's then executed on television. Then his brother rises up, who's supposed to be the sort of new and better JFK, is also executed on the campaign trail. You've got American terrorism taking place with the Wither Underground. Then you've got the Watergate scandal, where everyone on the left and the right becomes super disillusioned about our politics. Like, we were supposed to be the good guy. There's sort of this American embarrassment. We did World War II right. And now you've got this brokenness in D.C., you got war problems, like unbelievable, like we think things are strange and confusing. Now you have the Cuban Missile Crisis where people thought the world was going to end. Kids wearing masks, do you think that's hard? We had, I mean, kids were climbing underneath desks in fear of like a nuclear bomb as if that was going to help anybody. Vietnam and draft cards, you're worried about kids with cell phones and technology and the effect of that. We put a man on the moon. 
You should have been there when the roots of overconsumption like rose up in the advertising age or when the hippie culture came onto the scene with Woodstock. So many drugs. You should have been there when the pill came. Sexuality changed dramatically in what seemed like overnight. I mean, this was a disorienting moment where it felt like the world was in complete disarray. Now, my friend at this point just turns to this guy on the phone and just goes, I really hope this has a point, which you might be wondering too. Then in this moment, in this cultural moment of expectancy or uncertainty, I should say, the Jesus moment came, the Jesus movement. People who are unbelievably burned out where the cultural like systems and the ways in which people are thinking of operating their world begin to fall apart. And you see this massive movement of young people fall in love with Jesus. Asbury Revival and the Jesus Music and all this stuff. In a couple of years, I think it was like less than two years, two million people, young people were swept into the church. Even on the cover of Time Magazine, this. It's just like you couldn't, you couldn't stop talking about this weird thing that was happening. So with a sort of spirit of urgency, this gentleman said to my mentor, who then turned and said to me and the, those of us that were at this space with him, and I am turning and saying to you. He said, I've never seen a moment where culture is so ripe for another Jesus movement. Anyone have a little bit of faith for that this morning? Just a little bit. You just have a little bit. I've never seen a moment that's so ripe for a Jesus movement. And he said, call them, John. And John turned to me and said, Andrew, call them. And I'm turning to you to call each other to this. Look at our moment right now. All that has happened in the last year with George Floyd, all that's happened with like recognizing how unjust our history is, all that happened with Trump and Biden and conspiracy theories, a whole generation that thinks politics will solve absolutely nothing. The absolutely humbling events of Afghanistan for a nation like ours, the surveillance culture that's taking place. Like none of us seem to even care anymore that we are being constantly um, sur surveilled. How bad can sexuality get when there's a show called Dating Naked that's actually popular? Some of you are like, I love that show. <laughs> Repent, no, Steve. It's like a meta-crisis, earthquakes and fires, and it's just, I mean, Portland, Oregon being a mess for weeks and weeks and weeks. The world is asking for a way forward. What is the moment? And do we actually have an opportunity for us to lean in and press in to what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus in this moment? We have talked, as we are walking away in our disillusionment, we've talked about everything except Jesus. The cultural conversation has happened, and it's happened about everything except Jesus. What are we going to do? We have to stand up and say, I have good news for you. I have good news. We have to change the conversation. So anytime you get a chance to talk about Jesus, you want to talk about race? Yeah, let's talk about race and Jesus. You want to talk about sexuality? Yeah, let's talk about the, the, the sexual ethics of Jesus. He's a lot to say on it. You want to talk about politics? Yeah, let's talk about politics and Jesus. You want to talk about family? Let's talk about family and Jesus. You want to talk about women and the Me Too movement? Yeah, let's talk about that and Jesus. You want to talk about secularism? Let's talk about secularism and Jesus. I want to put Jesus at the center. And this will happen because we have been given an opportunity to make that happen. 
an opportunity on this day and this moment, coming out of last week with like seeing 40-some folks up front here just repenting of the things that have gotten in the way of them and God. In some ways, it's like a, a part two, even as I'm setting up our next series. I mean, this is a moment where we can say, I'm going to reset and recenter my life here. You want to talk about deconstruction? Yeah, let's talk about deconstruction in Jesus. Masks, Lysol, Jesus and Lysol, baby. Part five. I don't know, policy. I mean, we can go down the list. So we're going to talk about this. We're doing this series where we want to lean into just the compelling and beautiful person of Jesus. I want to talk about the path of Jesus in light of the path of faith, where we get into like the way we've become disillusioned by worldviews. I want to talk about the path of love in a world that loves the mantra, love is love, and doesn't know quite what that means. We want to talk about the path to true identity, the path of freedom, the path of compassion, the path of justice. Look, I don't like the current conversation and I plan on spending the rest of my life or the rest of the time I get the honor of serving you as a pastor to commit to changing the conversation. I want to change the conversation because every time I have been reset and recentered on the person of Jesus, I have found the good and the true and the beautiful explode in my soul. Our call, church, in this moment of disillusionment is to be faithful. And we can't be faithful as a community engaging our city if we are not faithful in our hearts. And so what does it look like for us to recenter on Jesus? Just like the civil rights movement, one of those powerful Christian revivals, just like the Jesus people movement. Like the underlying phrase was, I demand this generation have a meeting with Jesus. And before you get all twisted, demand, some of you are new, like I'm not that kind of preacher. It's like beating people with Bibles or something, whatever image comes into your mind in that. I just want to be clear. <laughs> Forget a lot of you like don't know me. Oh, Andrew says this stuff. He's really like this. I mean, like, am I going to be committed to trusting that Jesus is actually Lord and King of all? That Jesus' way is actually the best possible way to live? I'm going to rediscover the art of living the full and abundant life. I want that kingdom. I want that kingdom that all of my friends and neighbors have. I want that same kingdom with all the secular creeds posted up in our lawn. I want that freedom. I want that for them. I want that kingdom. I want that. But I want Jesus to actually drive the movement. Because we're seeing what happens when he does. In Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations. Sanctuary, will God get the glory in our church? Will God get the glory in our church? Will he? I want to plead with you, be that annoying person who always makes it about Jesus. You guys have heard me preach for a long time, many of you. And you know how much I like to take those, that time. We're going to take the time to really understand the complexities of our moment and to spend that deconstructing power on deconstructing ideologies that I think are incredibly harmful. 
Man, at the end of the day, I got to tell you, it's a moment in my life, and it's a moment in many of my colleagues' life, and it's a moment I know in many of our leaders' lives, and I'm guessing in many of yours, where you're just like, I could read every book in the world and spend all the time trying to make sense of all of this, but I tell you, I can't remember the last time I read the Gospels. I can't remember the last time I just trusted the simple things that Jesus asked me to step into. It's like I need a little more Jesus loves me, this I know in my life. It's like as the world gets more complex, Jesus can handle those questions, but I need to be someone who resets and recenters my life and allows him to walk up next to me and go, hey, hey, Andrew, what are you talking about? What are you talking about in your disillusionment? Are you talking about me? Are you talking about all those things you're disillusioned by in me? Or no? Or no? Because without that, there is no life. At the ascension, Christ, we're told, is filling the universe with himself. We need to increase our vision to fill our city and homes and hearts with the message and mission of Jesus so that we might hand our kids or somebody else's kids, the next generation, a beautiful and faithful church. I don't know what the next season's gonna look like. I just know I wanna be with Jesus. Maybe it will look like the Jesus movement and we will see in the wake of all of this uncertainty, beauty and truth and grace and mercy and love and patience and all the beauty of the way Jesus arise in our culture, like the first church, like the Jesus movement. Maybe we won't. Maybe it will be like the church in Iraq, Afghanistan, where in the midst of the faithfulness, it's actually seen a decline. It's actually been a really hard season and they have not yet seen the harvest of the seeds that they've sown. I do not know but I do know we are called to be faithful. Not faithful to some missional ideology, not faithful to looking relevant in all the right sorts of ways. We know, right, in this church we talk a lot, we are gonna confound the progressives and confound the conservatives because we follow the king. And so might we, might we proclaim in our bones what a beautiful name. What a beautiful name. Not just like the name Jesus, right? We know this. When we talk about the name of Jesus, we're talking about the character and the person and the power and all that they are. What a beautiful name. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful name. What a wondrous name. I want that line. <laughs> those creeds, those scriptures, those stories of the marvelous, powerful beautiful, gentle work of Jesus resonating in my soul. And so as we close here, we're going to close by taking communion. If you didn't grab one of those cups, horrible COVID communion <laughs> with the cellophane. First chance we get to throw those things out, we're going to have a little burning party with them. <laughs> you can take the top part out. And maybe you need to just see, maybe you are an Emmaus. You've walked away. You're disillusioned and disappointed. If you didn't get one of those, by the way, you can raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you. And there is Jesus with his disappointed disciples who he's walked away with saying, this is all you need for the road ahead. Sit with me. I know I haven't spelled it all out yet. I'm showing you what the next steps are. Come back to me. I can't go there. I can't show you just how big and wide and beautiful I am until you come back home. Recenter yourself. Ingest me in this moment. And so Jesus, rewinding the clock, right? He says, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat. And then at Emmaus, just like in the upper room, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is like the new way we're going to relate to one another. You can know me. This cup says you can be with me. Like my blood can be pumping through your veins. God, I, am, I have never been far off and I'm here to show you that I have never been far off. And he took the cup, this cup, the new covenant in my blood, as often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Let us drink. And so with the bread and the cup on our lips, would you stand with me? Would you stand? Would you stand boldly with maybe a little more resolve in your heart to proclaim? Maybe it's like, it's like uh, in gospel music, right? In the black tradition, you sing lines over and over and over and over and over and over. You know why you do that? Because in that tradition, you sing it until it becomes real. You sing it until you mean it until it begins to take hold. And so let's just sing again. What a beautiful name. What a powerful name. Let's just sing the name Jesus again until we, with a bit of a skip in our step, with, blood, with, with juice and bread on our lips, have a fresh resolve to reset and recenter, to go just ready to make Jesus our all in all because he is our all in all. And as we sing one last word, I'm reminded of Jesus's phrase to his disciples, which is just so apropos in this moment, come to me. Some of you are way up the road and you have not even thought about heading back to Jerusalem. Hear Jesus say to you, come to me all who are weary, heavy laden, disillusioned, deconstructing, exhausted, uncertain, come to me and I will give you rest. Come home. And all God's people said, amen. Let us sing out together as we close.